began um, uh, researching this topic about 10 years ago when piracy was really quote unquote hot off the coast of Somalia in the Gulf of Aden. Um, piracy has by today um, moved more to the west coast of Africa. Uh, we've seen almost no piracy attacks in the Gulf of Aden over the last few years, but uh, piracy has truly proliferated on the west coast of Africa in the Gulf of Guinea. Um, and I'll show you a map in just a minute. You'll see that um, there are some other you know, hotbeds of piracy, including in um, South America. Um, yeah, I can only see the screen here. So um, over the last five years, um, how many piracy attacks uh, have been reported? So in 2019, for the first six months of 2019, there have been 78 reports of piracy. In 2018, 201, 180 in 2017, 191 in 2015, so lately, piracy really has moved away, if you will, from the Gulf of Aden and has spread in these um, other areas, including some of the neighboring countries um, here. But really, Nigeria seems to be the, the, the hotbed for piracy lately. Um, so here in Asia, in 2019, there have been 11 um, incidents reported in Indonesia, three in Malaysia, three in the Philippines, three in China. The last piracy incidents in Singapore and the Malacca Straits go back to 2015, by the way. In Africa, 21 attacks so far in Nigeria, three in Togo, six in Venezuela, and four in Peru when it comes to South America, and then very, very few attacks, none in the Gulf of Aden off the coast of Somalia as of 2019, and very few in 2018, 17, and 16. And if you ask me why that is so, um, I would say that that is so because piracy is truly a crime of opportunity. Um, those who are interested in this endeavor look for um, opportunity. And so Somalia was a failed, has been basically a failed state since the early 90s. And back in 2007, 2008, when piracy really started proliferating off the coast of Somalia, pirates were able to operate with almost total impunity off the coast of Somalia. Because of the general state of lawlessness there, they were able to um, freely dock their skiffs in uh, various Somali coastal towns and to basically operate um, with total impunity because of the uh, relative lack of law enforcement there. Um, in Nigeria, where piracy has truly proliferated over the last few years, um, there's a slightly um, different um, issue there. It's not so much that the state is lawless, there is actually law enforcement, but the state is incredibly corrupt and so many of the piracy um, operators are able to pay off the local authorities in order to run their um, operation smoothly. Um, this is just a map showing you um, the highest numbers of piracy attacks worldwide in 2019. So you see some in South America, mostly the Gulf of Guinea, and then um, some here in um, Southeast Asia. Um, so okay, to go back to, uh, to go back to um, Somalia, where this really um, started in, in the modern era, because piracy obviously is not new. It's not something that was invented in 2008. Piracy goes back to the 16th, 17th century. You mentioned Hugo Grotius, who talked in, the, in his um, you know, very famous treatise about piracy. Piracy was 
the original, what we call universal jurisdiction crime. What that meant was that anybody who captured pirates on the high seas uh, had the right to arrest them and had the right to hang them. So the original universal jurisdiction crime. Today, there are other crimes that we associate with universal jurisdiction, which include genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, but piracy really is the original um, universal jurisdiction crime. Piracy uh, basically was eradicated almost altogether until uh, relatively recently, and then in 2008, 2009, incidents start, started um, skyrocketing off the coast of Somalia. So as I mentioned, Somalia is a failed state, hasn't had a, a central government since the early 90s. There are parts of Somalia, including Puntland and Somaliland, that function as de facto states, as de facto separate states. There's almost no law enforcement. And various reports indicate that Somali coastal towns were actually benefiting themselves from the proceeds of piracy, that the local economies were thriving because of the proceeds of uh, piracy. So back in 2011, for example, there were um, 237 Somali piracy incidents reported, including 28 hijackings and over 500 hostages taken. Now, how did this work? What was the model here? The model was that there typically um, would be a larger mothership that would sail out to the Indian Ocean, and then the pirates would um, leave the mothership in smaller skiffs, smaller boats, in groups of six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then they would basically try to attack um, another ship and try to hijack um, the crew. Most of the shipping vessels that sail in those waters, uh, the crew is, used to be completely unarmed. So this is relatively easy prey. Um, the pirates themselves tended to be um, um, equipped with uh, rocket-propelled grenades and AK-47s. And apparently, um, at this point in time, it was easier to buy an AK-47 in Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia, than it was to buy a loaf of bread. So very you know, easy supply of, of weapons. So the pirates would go out on these small skiffs, skiffs find a, you know, a victim vessel, quickly overtake it, take, it, take the hostages, uh, sail them back to a coastal town in Somalia where there's almost no law enforcement, um, so nobody would come after them, and they would hold the hostages for ransom payment. And they would demand multi-million dollar um, ransoms from typically the shipping company. Um, and in some instances, the government of the crew members taken would actually pay the ransoms themselves. Ransoms would be paid in cash. There have been reports of ransom, ransom money being dropped in suitcases from a helicopter you know, directly to the pirates. And for the most part, the, for the, most part, the pirates would uh, release the hostages unharmed. But some of the hostages were held for um, three, four, five, um, months. Um, the shipping industry um, suffered fairly significant costs because of this, and according to, some in, according to some estimates, the cost of the global shipping industry was about $10 billion. Now, why, you know, why, is, you know, why is Somalia is so important here in the Gulf of Aden? When you think of shipping routes, most goods that are shipped from Europe to Asia go through the Gulf of Aden. Right. In order, if you if you wanted to avoid the Gulf of Aden, if you wanted to say, okay, this is a, these are dangerous waters, these are you know pirate infested waters, I don't want to go there, that would mean you have to go around Africa, right? Which adds several weeks to your journey and which adds significant costs because not only are you paying extra fuel costs, but you're also paying for time and labor of the crew members on board. So not a very good option for most um, shipping um, companies. Um, 
So the, the other thing is, what are some of the other reasons for Somali piracy? Um, poverty. So the average Somali makes about $600 per year, whereas a pirate um, involved in a successful piracy operation could earn several thousand dollars relatively easily. And many of the pirates, by the way, um, tended to be very young men, some as young as 13, 14, um, engaged in piracy really for lack of other um, opportunities. There's also a little bit of a Robin Hood mentality. There's a sense of injustice that Somalia is a very poor state um, where the waters have been overfished by you know, the Western countries. There's also been some environmental dumping. And so the sense that Somalia would be doing better had it not been for mostly you know, Western countries overfishing and dumping environmental waste. And so there's the sense of the pirates taking back what was taking back to themselves what was really you know, taken away uh, from them. And really, the most important reason was that this was the perfect crime of opportunity. Uh, lots of Somali youth, no meaningful opportunities, and the ability to make a significant amount of money in um, a very short period of time. Most of the piracy organizers tended to be um, you know, businessmen, I use the word businessmen in, in sort of a shady sense, but businessmen operating from London or Dubai or some other uh, other place and using local recruiters to find their uh, you know, piracy crew in these local um, coastal towns. Um, and here's a map of um, piracy attacks from 2005 to 2010. Um, the other reason that pirates were able to operate with almost total impunity for several years was that the Indian Ocean is this huge body of water. And so it is impossible to police it really well. You know, you can police some areas, you can police the, 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 the straits of the Gulf of Aden itself, but then once you get farther out in the Indian Ocean, as this map shows, um, it is impossible for these um, you know, naval fleets to be everywhere. And so pirates were at times able to strike against their targets um, just because there was no other vessel anywhere um, nearby. Um, I already talked about this, so the, the, the Lotus Alperandi was basically using these smaller boats, attacking from a larger uh, mother ship, and then um, uh, sailing the um, victims and the cargo to Somali coastal towns. The Somali pirates, for the most part, were uninterested in the cargo, and their business model was really to hijack the crew members and to hold the crew members for ransom. Now, does anybody here know the crew members, which countries they tend to come from? You know any like so many 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 come from the Philippines. There are these um, recruiting events. They're almost like job fairs. If you want to be a crew member, you can go to a job fair in a large city and you can sign up. The pay is relatively good. Many come from the Philippines. Um, um, some come from sort of um, random other countries. I'll mention Montenegro is one. Um, um, some come from you know other Asian countries, some African nations, but mostly not from like you know England, France, Germany, mostly from uh, the developing world. And so the other, the other thing that was really interesting here is that um, these piracy attacks were a perfect universal jurisdiction problem. So, and I'm assuming nobody here is a lawyer, most of you are, oh, okay. So for, from the perspective of universal jurisdiction, right? So you have, um, Somali pirates attacking a ship that's flying the flag of Panama or some other you know, sort of random state, um, 
owned by a company in the Netherlands or in the UK, employing crew members from five or six or seven different countries. Um, and so, you know, the perfect universal jurisdiction crime in the sense that there is no particular state has a nexus to this crime. Lots of different states have very sort of weak links to the crime, if you will, but um, if you think of, okay, who is going to prosecute these pirates, um, you very quickly run into this you know, universal jurisdiction problem that I'll talk about in just a, um, in just a second. Here are just some photos of um, Somali pirates themselves. You see very um, unsophisticated uh, boats, very small boats, um, you know, no, no fishing equipment. These are not fishing boats. These are just very, very small boats. Um, and lots of uh, very powerful weaponry on board. Now this is a, one of the piracy fighting fleets. This is so-called Combined Task Force 150. And if you compare you know, this and the fleet, it does look like a David and Goliath kind of situation, right? But, but why were they able to operate with such impunity? Again, it's because the fleet itself cannot police all of the Indian Ocean, right? It, it can sort of sail in, in, you know, along specific routes, but it cannot be everywhere at all, um, at all times. Now, just to give you a, a contrast, how is the um, more current piracy that has proliferated in the Gulf of Guinea, how is this different than the Somali piracy model? So, in the Gulf of Guinea, um, the pirates tend to use faster and more, more powerful ships. Oftentimes, they attack oil tankers in what has been, what the media has called petro-piracy. And in this model, the pirates are not so much after the crew, they're really um, in it for the cargo. They basically have a sophisticated operation where they're able to capture the oil on board an oil tanker and then sell it off on the black, on the black market. These tend to be much more violent attacks because if you think about it, if you're a pirate and you're in it for the hijacking of the crew, you want the ship owners or the crew member's country to pay ransom. You're more likely to treat the crew relatively well, right, because you want them to be released unharmed, because if this is your model, you want to signal for the future that, hey, if the ransom is paid, I'm going to release the crew unharmed. If you're in it because of the oil, you really don't care about the lives of the crew members, right? You're not really interested in treating, treating them well, and if you kill a few, so be it. So a much more violent model of uh, piracy. Now, in um, Nigeria, what is similar with Somalia is that this also seems to be a crime of opportunity. So Somalia, failed state, lawless, no law enforcement. Nigeria, not a failed state, not lawless, but incredibly corrupt. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, some of the piracy operators are able to pay off um, the local police forces or, or share part of the proceeds, if you will, of the you know, um, sale of the oil. Um, also in the Nigerian Delta, um, it's apparently relatively easy for the pirates to hide the cargo or hide the um, hijacked vessel. Um, and a lot of the time in the Nigerian model, the vessel itself will be completely dismantled and destroyed, the hijacked vessel. Right? They're really not in it. They don't care about the boat. They really care about the, um, the oil. Now, the different, another difference um, between the Gulf of Guinea and Somalia is as I told you, in Somalia, basically, we have seen almost no incidents of piracy over the last five years. Why is that so? Well, that is so because once the cost to the global shipping industry became relatively high, um, the shipping industry lobbied um, 
various countries, the European Union, to do something about this. So in addition to increased um, Navy patrolling, what happened is that most shipping companies started using private armed guards on board. So whereas before, um, shipping vessels, you know, you'd have a crew of 10 or 15 or 20, nobody was armed. Increasingly, shipping companies started paying private armed guards. And so when the pirates attacked, all of a sudden they would be, um, you know, um, facing, uh, you know, a much more powerful um, defender on board. And so, are, are, you know, haven't been able to um, overtake the, the, the the, the target vessels um, as, as easily. Um, in Nigeria, this hasn't happened so far, and my impression, and from everything I've, I've, I've you know, studied about this, it seems to me that the international community was much more involved in fighting Somali piracy than it is in fighting uh, piracy in the Gulf of Guinea. Why is that so? Again, I think that is so because of the importance of the Gulf of Aden, the importance of that shipping route in the global shipping industry much more important route than the Gulf of Guinea. In the Gulf of Guinea, yes, there's the oil industry, there are the oil tankers sailing. Um, yes, it's important for the regional countries, but this is not nearly as important to the global shipping industry. And so the international community really has done relatively little to try to um, do something about these piracy attacks in the Gulf of Guinea, whereas the response has been pretty strong um, in the Gulf of Aden. This is just a map showing you um, where the pirate, most of the piracy attacks in 2018 have happened in the Gulf of Guinea. Now, most of these reports and maps come from a body called the International uh, Maritime Bureau, which is basically a subgroup of um, um, the um, um, International Chamber of Commerce. So the International Chamber of Commerce has this International Maritime Bureau, which is a, a, a bureau which is basically tasked with collecting piracy reports um, issuing all sorts of data about piracy, warnings, if you will, to um, those involved in the shipping industry. They issue all sorts of maps. Um, so if you are if you are a um, shipper, you could use some of this data to try to calculate your route if you wanted to avo avoid some of these um, you know piracy infested waters. Now, what does international? What does Hugo Grotius? You know, what does international law say about piracy? Um, and I wanted to quickly touch upon three different things. So I want to talk about jurisdictions who capture pirates under international law, the definition of piracy under international law, and then the jurisdictions who prosecute pirates under international law. Um, so first, the jurisdictions who capture pirates. So basically, under maritime law, the high seas are considered to be no man's land. The high seas are everything excluding the 12 nautical miles um, from the shore of the coastal state. So the territorial seas, basically 12 nautical miles from the coast of Singapore, you know, going out 12 nautical miles, anything beyond is considered the high seas. And because the high seas are really no man's land in international law, any nation is free to capture pirates on the high seas. So that is not a problem. Where it becomes a little bit more tricky is if pirates retreat into the territorial waters of the coastal states. What happens then? In, in international law, basically only that state has jurisdiction to enforce, jurisdiction to arrest in its territorial waters. So in Somalia, in the Gulf of Aden, this was a big problem because pirates would quickly retreat into the Somali territorial waters, and at that point, um, the international patrol or the boat of any other country trying to capture the pirates would have to stop. 
So in order to address this, the United Nations Security Council passed various resolutions, several different resolutions, which authorized maritime nations to enter Somali territorial waters and even Somali land if in hot pursuit of pirates. Now these resolutions have a relatively narrow reach because they only apply in Somalia, so they do not apply, for example, in the Gulf of Guinea. So if you had pirates operating somewhere off the coast of Nigeria, no other state would have jurisdiction to actually enter the territorial waters of Nigeria to arrest the pirates there. So these only apply in um, Somalia. They have to be renewed every six months. The Security Council has to vote every six months. Now, by the way, this tends to be a non-controversial Security Council item. I'm sure all of you are familiar with how polarized and basically paralyzed the Security Council has been, especially for the last five to 10 years. But this is, this is somewhat you know, non-controversial. So these resolutions have been um, re uh, renewed every uh, six months. And then the other thing is that the resolutions only authorize these maritime nations already involved in patrolling the Gulf of Aden to enter Somali territorial waters. So you have to be in this group of countries that tend to be mostly like EU countries. You have to be in this group of countries in order to benefit from the Security Council resolutions. If the you know, uh, naval authorities of Singapore were to go to the Gulf of Aden and try to enter the Somali territorial waters, they would not be able to do so under the Security Council resolutions because they're not specifically mentioned in the, um, in the resolutions. So for the Gulf of Guinea, if we wanted to do something similar, the Security Council would have to authorize a whole new set of resolutions to enable countries there to enter the Nigerian or you know, uh, Cote d'Ivoire or whatever other country's territorial waters. Now, what about the definition of piracy? So the main convention, the main treaty in international law that addresses piracy is the so-called UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. The UN Convention on the Law of the Sea has been signed by something like 170 countries. So most countries around the world are, are signatory. And it, it is widely considered to be customary law. One country that's not a member is the United States, but most, most other countries really are, including um, Somalia. So Article 101 of the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea defines piracy as an illegal act of violence or detention um, committed for private ends by the crew or the passengers of a private ship and directed on the high seas against another ship or aircraft or against persons or property, um, and then if you skip down to C, notice this, this also involves any act of inciting or of intentionally facilitating an act described in subparagraph A or B. So basically, you don't have to be the actual pirate. You could be someone who's inciting or facilitating an act of piracy by, for example, being uh, somebody who finances an attack, somebody who organizes an attack, somebody who negotiates the ransom, that kind of a thing. Um, so this, this definition of piracy is relatively narrow because for an act to qualify as piracy, you need a violent act on the high seas for private aims and you need the presence of two vessels, the victim and the aggressor vessel. What this means is that some acts that might look like piracy will basically not qualify as piracy under the definition. And those earlier reports, the numbers that I gave you of worldwide, worldwide piracy incidents, I would have to add a caveat here to tell you that some of those piracy incidents actually would not qualify as piracy under Article 101. Why? Well, for example, because they might be committed in the territorial waters of a coastal state. Under this definition, for something to amount to piracy, it has to, be, it has to happen on the high seas. If it's 
five miles off the coast of Singapore that it's not piracy under this um, treaty. Um, you also need the act to be committed for private aims. Why is this, uh, you know, narrow? It's narrow that it's narrow in the sense that if um, if an act that otherwise looks like piracy is committed towards a political end, imagine for example terrorism, then that act would not qualify as piracy under the UN Convention. Um, the other thing is that you need two vessels. You need the victim vessel and the aggressor vessel. So for example, if a Somali pirate were to disguise as a crew member and board the you know victim vessel in its last port of entry and then basically you know, whip out you know his AK-47 somewhere on the high seas, that might look like piracy, but it wouldn't qualify as piracy under the UN um, definition. Now, other than this treaty, there are some other treaties that piracy-fighting nations have used. So there's this convention called the SUA Convention, the Convention for the Suppression of Unlawful Acts of Violence Against the Safety of Maritime Navigation. The SUA Convention is an anti-terrorism convention which outlaws a series of acts of maritime violence, but basically does not have such a narrow definition of piracy. And the Sewer Convention actually doesn't use the word piracy at all, instead talks about maritime violence. The Sewer Convention could be used if you were trying to, for example, criminalize um, an act that looks like piracy but was committed for terrorism slash political ends. You know, that would amount to something illegal under the Sewer Convention but would not amount to piracy under the um, UN um, Convention of the Law of the Sea. Now, what about jurisdiction to prosecute pirates? So the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea in Article 105 says that any nation may capture pirates on the high seas and that the capturing nation may prosecute the pirates. The problem when it comes to at least the Somali piracy model was that often the capturing nation was not the nation that actually intended to prosecute the pirates. So I told you that piracy is really the perfect universal jurisdiction problem. So imagine you know, the Somali pirates, they attack a ship that's flying the flag of Panama. The crew members are from um, the Philippines and India and Panama itself, um, and the uh, pirates are intercepted by a Dutch vessel, a Dutch Navy. The Netherlands has almost no connection to this crime other than the fact that they intercepted the pirates. But the victims are not from the Netherlands. The pirates themselves are not from the Netherlands. The ship is not from the Netherlands. And so why would they go through the trouble of you know now transferring the pirates to the Netherlands and basically, if you will, wasting their um, court time and resources in order to prosecute individuals who did nothing to harm the Netherlands. So the problem here is that the UN Convention says the capturing nation may prosecute, but the UN Convention doesn't say anything about whether a third country is allowed to prosecute the pirates who are captured by some other state. So can a country like the Netherlands uh, once it has um, intercepted Somali pirates, can it you know, ship them somewhere else, outsourcing? You know, can, it, can it outsource the pirates to another country that is willing to prosecute? The UN Convention doesn't say anything about that. Most authorities agree that basically silence here means acquiescence with this practice, that yes, this is allowed under the UN Convention, but some have made the argument that the UN Convention actually doesn't authorize it. The other problem is that the countries if the capturing nation is a country that's signatory to a human rights treaty, treaty, 
most human rights treaties have provisions in them where, which say that um, the member states of that human rights treaty are not allowed to transfer individuals to a third country if there's a risk that the person will be mistreated in that third country. So here, one of the first nations that basically you know, became interested in prosecuting the pirates was Kenya. Um, there were allegations of essentially abuse in the Kenyan prisons, and so if you're the Netherlands and you're a member of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the Convention Against Torture, a bunch of other human rights treaties, are you allowed to actually transfer the person to Kenya if you think that the person's human rights would be you know, um, not respected in um, Kenya? So um, here, because, uh, because of this issue where the capturing nation was often uninterested in prosecuting the pirates, several groups of pirates reported to have been caught and released. So they're caught by you know, the Dutch Navy, they're held for a few days, they're fingerprinted, their um, you know, um, um, names are written down, and then they're released. And so in order to prevent that from happening, these piracy fighting countries, mostly EU countries, signed transfer agreements with three regional partners, Kenya, the Seychelles, and Mauritius, and said, okay, once we capture the pirates, we're not really interested in bringing them to our home to prosecute them there because that's a really unattractive proposition for us, even if we have universal jurisdiction statutes. So instead of that, instead of just releasing them, we're going to transfer them to one of these regional states, Kenya, the Seychelles, or uh, Mauritius. And just to pause here and just tell you a little bit more about universal jurisdiction. So while universal jurisdiction is this concept that many countries now have in their domestic penal statutes, it is again a very unpopular proposition for the most part because you're talking about using your country's court's time and resources to prosecute someone who has not harmed you, your state, your nationals in any meaningful way, right? So a fairly, um, a fairly unpopular form of um, jurisdiction. So let me quickly tell you about the regional partners here, Kenya, um, um, the Seychelles, and Mauritius. So Kenya was the first country to sign these transfer agreements, or MOUs, with the US, the UK, and the EU. And prosecutions in Kenya uh, pursuant to these transfer agreements began in 2006 in a specialized piracy court in Mombasa, which is um, a coastal town in um, Kenya. Kenya, by the way, is located right next to Somalia, so there was a sense that it made sense for Kenya to be interested here because piracy was also harming Kenyan interests, uh, interests themselves. Problems arose pretty early on. Um, allegations of corruption, because basically the, the way that this works is that like the U US, UK, EU, and there's also the um, United Nations Office on Drugs and Crimes that, Crimes that has been involved, typically they will donate a relatively large sum of money to the regional partner. So for example, the Seychelles got something like $90 million. I'm not exactly sure how much Kenya got, but let's say $100 million. And the money is supposed to go towards piracy prosecutions. So it's supposed to go towards building perhaps new courtrooms, building better detention facilities, uh, making sure that you have interpreters on standby, making sure you have adequate court personnel, you know, all of that is expensive. In Kenya, lots of allegations of corruption from the get-go where the international community would give large sums of money and it was unclear how the money was being used. Reports of uh, very um, unsafe and unsanitary prison conditions. Um, and again, if you are 
a Western country signatory to human rights treaties, you cannot really afford to be transferring individuals to a country where they might be uh, mistreated. Um, and then Kenya itself started perceiving this as you know, they were the dumping ground. These pirates were being dumped on Kenya, and Kenya had no choice but to take them. Not, not really sure because they were getting a lot of money in exchange, but that was, that was really the, the, the perception. So in 2010, the Kenyan Attorney General an announced that basically that would be the end of the transfer program, that Kenya would no longer um, accept more pirates. And then there was a court ruling um, where one of the Kenyan uh, trial level courts decided that Kenya actually did not have jurisdiction to prosecute pirates. That ruling was overturned in 2012 on appeal and Kenya resumed taking pirates. So yes, um, Kenya as of now has prosecuted hundreds of pirates that were mostly transferred to Kenya from um, some of these other EU um, countries that captured them. Because of the uncertainty of the Kenyan transfer program, the international community began to look for other partners, and the next partner they found was the Seychelles. So the Seychelles is an island nation in the Indi basically in the middle of the Indian Ocean, located relatively far from Somalia, and yet along the piracy route, if you will. So Ken the, the Seychelles, like Kenya, concluded several MOUs with um, um, the EU, pursuant to the Kenyan model. The Seychelles also amended its local penal law to model piracy, the piracy offense and the local law on the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas. And the Seychelles then pretty quickly began um, taking groups of pirates for prosecution um, in their courts. Um, several successful prosecutions have taken place there. Um, the biggest problem with the Seychelles um, had to do with capacity. This is a very small island nation. The entire Bar Association of the Seychelles is something like 30 individuals, so very, very, and that includes judges, defense attorneys, prosecutors, everyone. Very small place, small prison facilities. And so the international community, the $90 million that went to the Seychelles, what they did is they built um, an entire new prison, one of the prison wings that then was basically dedicated for these um, piracy suspects, but the rest of the prison is benefiting um, you know, the rest of the Seychelles. There, um, the, the Seychelles is a Commonwealth country, so if you are an attorney who um, is trained in any of the Commonwealth countries, you can go work in the Seychelles. So the Seychelles started basically um, importing um, lawyers, judges, defense attorneys to make sure that they had enough um, for these uh, prosecutions. And then last but certainly not least, what the Seychelles also did is, is, is it concluded these post-conviction transfer agreements with Somalia and then also with Puntland and Somaliland. So Puntland and Somaliland are two regions in Somalia that are technically part of Somalia, but that function as de facto states. They're basically de facto independent from the rest of Somalia. So the Seychelles con concluded these post-conviction transfer agreements where they say, okay, we'll prosecute the pirates in our courts, but once their sentence, and the sentences really range from you know, seven, eight years all the way up to 20, 25 years. Once we sentence them, then they're going to be shipped back to Somalia, Puntland, and Somaliland. And the international community, by the way, also invested money to build new prison facilities in Puntland and Somaliland that would be uh, on par with you know, human rights standards. And so the way that the Seychelles has dealt with these capacity issues is to say, we'll prosecute them, but then we don't want to keep them here for 20, you know, that's a long time, 15, 20 years, that's a long time that somebody's going to be occupying your prison space. So once they're convicted, we'll ship them back to their home country, if you will, which is a much easier solution because the, you know, part of the problem here too has been that 
pirates who are sentenced in, you know, some pirates have been prosecuted in countries like the Netherlands and Germany, where they get fairly lenient sentences of like five, six, seven years. Some of them have said, well, you know what, I'm gonna stay here, I'm gonna claim political asylum. So first of all, you start off with this proposition of universal jurisdiction, which is unpopular to start, but now you're talking about pirates who are going to say, after they've finished their sentence, oh, by the way, now you have to keep me forever, right? So, so not, a very, not a very attractive proposition. So the Seychelles said, we don't want to keep them here in the Seychelles, we'll prosecute them, but then basically they're, they're out of here. Um, and then the, the um, last partner that the international community looked to is Mauritius. Um, Mauritius is another island nation in the Indian Ocean, much more developed than the Seychelles. Um, an island nation of about a million people, but, but with a very developed bar association, so much, uh, much better capacity than in the Seychelles, if you will. So in 2011, the, the um, uh, Mauritius concluded an MOU with um, the European Union pursuant to the um, Kenyan and the Seychelles uh, model. Mauritius also updated its penal law to model the piracy offense on the UN Convention for Law of the Sea, like the Seychelles. Um, Mauritius, by the way, also benefited from a relatively large donation from the international community. They built a new prison um, from that, and then for a while they basically took no pirates. From something like 2010, 2011, up until 2014, they took no pirates. And the international community started getting really nervous because they said, wait a second, you know, we gave you 100 million, we gave you some large sum, you built a new prison, now you're supposed to start taking the pirates. And the way that these um, MOUs work is that it's always up to the discretion of the receiving country, Kenya, the Seychelles, or Mauritius, to say, we accept the group or you know, we don't. And I, I say the group because it's never one pirate, it's always five, six, seven, eight. Um, so Mauritius rejected several groups of pirates, and the international community started getting a little bit you know, upset about this. Finally, they took in a group, and this resulted in a successful prosecution um, in 2017. It actually was, ultimately was successful, but the trial, at the trial court level, the pirates were actually acquitted, and then this went on appeal, the prosecutor appealed, and then on appeal in 2017, the appellate court basically uh, you know, reversed the trial court, and then the trial court had to re-prosecute, and then they were um, ultimately um, convicted. Mauritius, because it also, like the Seychelles, was worried that these pirates would stay in their prisons for a long time, concluded post-conviction transfer agreements with Somalia, Puntland, and Somaliland so that the pirates, once they're convicted in the Mauritius courts, can then be shipped back to, um, to their home countries. And the last regional partner that I'll mention here is Tanzania. So in addition to Kenya, Mauritius, the Seychelles, the international community started looking to Tanzania as another potential regional partner. Um, Tanzania also amended its national laws to expand the definition of piracy, but unlike Kenya, the Seychelles, and Mauritius, Tanzania did not conclude a transfer agreement with the EU, so there's no way that a capturing nation can just you know, um, ship the pirates to Tanzania. Um, there have been reports of pirates prosecuted in, in, um, in Tanzania, so in 2019, a group of seven pirates was actually sentenced to life, but these pirates were actually apprehended by Tanzanian authorities. So they were not apprehended by the EU or by some other like Western state. Instead, they were actually apprehended by Tanzanian authorities and then um, prosecuted there. Now, what are some of the challenges for these national prosecutions? Um, one is that, you know, that I should mention that's actually really important here is the treatment of juvenile suspects. 
In the Somali piracy model, many of the uh, suspected pirates themselves are very young. And once they're arrested, um, some of them claim to be under 18. Some of them may be under 18, but some of them may not. And basically, because they have no passport, they have no other ID documents you know, that they have on themselves, it's impossible to verify the age. So in some of the Seychelles cases, the judges actually had to order physical, medical, dental exams to try to ascertain the suspect's age. And the exams don't tell you, like, this person is definitely 17 or this person is definitely 19. Instead, they give you an age range. So they'll say something like the person is likely to be you know, between 17 and 19. And the problem for these um, uh, prosecutions is that for the most part, if you suspect that somebody is under 18 um, and you're not able to verify their age with certainty, with certainty, you're supposed to treat them as a juvenile. And if you were a country that's a signatory to human rights treaty, then you would know that basically um, juveniles are supposed to be treated distinctly in the criminal justice system and they're not supposed to face the same penalties as the adults, and they're supposed to be um, incarcerated um, in a separate facility. So lots of problems, if you will, once a suspected pirate starts uh, claiming that they're um, juveniles. Another issue is what happens if there's force used during the capture slash arrest of the piracy suspect? If the pirates start complaining that they were mistreated during the arrest. And again, because we're talking about transfer of suspects from essentially you know, an EU Western state to a third party, any allegation of mistreatment um, poses lots of questions. And again, this is all facilitated through UN programs, UN money, so any allegation of mistreatment poses all sorts of um, challenges. What if, there, what if there's violence or again, like unlawful use of force committed by private armed guards um, during the um, capture slash arrest? Lots of very difficult legal issues. Um, this could be a topic for a whole like seminar. Um, these private armed guards are not state authorities. They're really contractors. So what happens if they commit violence, if they use force against the, the suspected pirates? Um, lots of you know, headaches, if you will, for the prosecuting nation. What happens, can you prosecute piracy conspirators and enablers? What if um, you know Kenya, the Seychelles of Mauritius, is trying to prosecute someone who negotiated the ransom payment, but wasn't actually a pirate with the AK-47 himself? Is that possible? Um, what if you know here I put can Sea Shepherds be treated as pirates? Do you know who Sea Shepherds are? So um, some some of you might know they're basically a group that tends to protest whaling and other activities, and so. What if they, for example, engage in you know violence on the high seas? They have a ship; they're using it against another ship. You know, can that be? Can they be treated as as pirates? And then, um, last but certainly not least, um, all sorts of allegations of mistreatment when it comes to detention facilities. So again, we're using you know UN money, UN programs, transfer agreements involving Western countries um, to third countries if the suspected pirates are held under conditions that are not on par with human rights standards, this poses lots of you know, very um, interesting questions. And so most of these issues haven't really surfaced in the Gulf of Guinea piracy model because basically the international community has not acted there yet, so we don't have transfer agreements, right? We don't have regional partners. 
but basically this could happen in the near future and if it does I would anticipate that lots of the same issues would, would arise um, there. So what about the way forward? I hope to have shown you from the first few slides that piracy really is around to stay. So while in the like Somali piracy heyday we saw 200-250 incidents per year, today in the Gulf of Guinea we're seeing 20-30 incidents per year, so less than, than in Somalia. But basically um, we see that over the years uh, piracy <coughs> is proliferating in the Gulf of Guinea and unless something is done it seems like it is here to stay. So the UN, um, when it got involved in Somalia, and we'll see whether it gets involved in the Gulf of Guinea, the UN created this contact group on piracy, which is basically a group comprised of representatives of various states, mostly um, either like large Western states or maritime states. And the contact group met in places like um, Amsterdam or Copenhagen several times, or sometimes New York, several times a year. So essentially, um, discuss the big ways of combating piracy. That group is still around, and we'll see whether it starts taking on the Gulf of Guinea piracy problem seriously. Um, there have been several think tanks and expert groups on piracy that were have been created in the US and in other states. Um, some of the suggestions from the UN contact group and these um, various think tanks was to do things like, for example, create um, a specialized piracy court in Somalia or in some other regional country um, in order to essentially create a place, a forum where pirates could always be prosecuted. Because under the current model, using these regional partners, Kenya, the Seychelles, Tanzania, Mauritius, um, yes, some pirates have been prosecuted, but there have been also multiple incidents of uh, pirates caught and released because of basically no venue as to where to prosecute them. Because the Seychelles says, for example, no, we're full this week, you know, or we have five trials ongoing, we can't possibly have another one. Or Kenya says, no, 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 no more prison space. Or Mauritius, for some reason, says, no, we won't take them, right? So what do you do then? You basically have to um, release them. So there's a sense that if there's a regional piracy court created, that will then provide a venue, a forum for these pirates to, 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 to always have a place to send them to. Um, so far, there has been relatively little traction for this. It's an idea, and in theory, it seems like a good idea, but there hasn't, for, for lots of different reasons, not much traction on, on that. Um, and if pirates start being um, captured in the Gulf of Guinea, if assuming the, the international community acted, um, if pirates started being caught in the Gulf of Guinea, we would have the same issue, because there, as of now, there are no regional countries, no regional partners, and again, the chances of um, a Dutch naval vessel um, sending the pirates to the Netherlands for prosecution there from the Gulf of Guinea are just very, very um, slim. Um, there have been other uh, global efforts to fight Somali piracy. So um, there have been all these joint naval fleets and, ta and, and, and operations uh, put together. Um, yeah. An information sharing law enforcement center that has been created in the Seychelles with the idea that the um, local regional law enforcement, um, you know, naval law enforcement agencies are going to work together. Um, there has been this push to use private armed guards, mostly coordinated through um, either the UN, through the contact group on piracy, through you know, regional efforts, but really global efforts utilized to eradicate the Somali piracy, we see that those were successful as of today. 
nothing of that sort in the Gulf of Guinea. So it's going to be interesting to interesting to see whether um, there's more that's done there. And I would predict that if not, then these piracy incidents in the Gulf of Guinea will continue to be on the rise.